Hello listeners, I'm Kathy Fang with Below the Radar, a Knowledge Democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, our host Amjo Hall is joined by philosopher, cultural theorist, and author of the psychoanalysis of artificial intelligence, Dr. Isabel Millar. Am and Isabel speak about the psychoanalytical questions of AI and subjectivity. Isabel explores Jacques Lacan's influence upon her work and the importance of considering sexuality and the body in conversations about AI. Enjoy the episode. Hello, welcome to Below the Radar. Delighted that you could join us again this week. We have a special guest, Dr. Isabel Millar is with us from the UK, I believe, although she may be elsewhere. We'll find out shortly, but let's begin. I'm going to ask Isabel, if you could introduce yourself uh, a little bit. Hi, it's really nice to be with you today. Well, I'm a philosopher and sort of a cultural theorist or psychoanalytic theorist from London. Um, I've just written my first book, The Psychoanalysis of AI, which I, I reckon we'll be talking a bit about today. And yeah, so I sort of work on the intersection of philosophy, critical theory, psychoanalytic theory, film, technology, artificial intelligence, and, and all those sexy things like that. <laughs> yeah, I'm wondering, uh, Isabel, we can maybe begin uh, with your with your book that's been out for, I think, maybe about a year now, uh, The Psychoanalysis of Artificial Intelligence with Paul Graves' Lacan series. Mm. I'm wondering if we can start with, you know, where did the project begin for you? I, I know it came out of a, a dissertation, but how did you come to the idea of uh, working on this set of problems or questions in the, in the first place? Well, I mean, when I began my doctoral research, I I sort of started off from a kind of more biopolitical um, background. Um, so I was sort of reading a lot of Foucault and uh, Agamben, and I was very interested in questions of technology and subjectivity. And from a sort of philosophical background, I started the journey towards talking and thinking about something to do with what what was becoming of subjectivity in the new sort of configurations um, that we were sort of facing. And reading a lot of kind of post-human literature that was around, um, sort of very Deleuze, Guattarian-influenced stuff, there was lots of interesting things that I sort of picked up on, but there was something that I didn't quite gel with and that I felt wasn't really hitting the spot of what I was interested in when it came to the question of the subject in relation to technology. And um, I started to do more Lacanian theory and was getting more um, kind of immersed into the clinical side of things. And uh, the more I, re- I read Lacan and was, uh, was around Lacanians, I, I started to develop different kind of interests in the question of technology, which um, was certainly more focused on the psychoanalytic side of um, these sort of post-human concerns, as opposed to the sort of more traditionally uh, biopolitical questions, in the sense that I wasn't just interested in obviously the political side of things and obviously the question of capitalism and um, data and the body and all those things, but I became interested in uh, really the sort of psychoanalytic structural conceptual questions around um AI and subjectivity as two discourses that were sort of intimately intertwined. And I, it, it sort of occurred to me that Lacan was probably one of the most sophisticated thinkers for artificial intelligence, even though he probably 
had never properly been used for artificial intelligence because, of course, they didn't exist when he was around. But he kind of had an infrastructure there already that I, I thought was was sort of ready at hand that could um, help to, to, to look at some of the really much more interesting questions I felt to do with AI. And of course, this is intimately connected to the question of sexuality and um, the body. So that's, uh, that's how it kind of first started. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm wondering, um, before we get into Lacan a bit, uh, around your engagement with Deleuze, Foucault and Agumbin, what did you find in that work that was relevant to your project, at least where it, it started initially? Yeah, so I mean, I think sort of my, my master's degree was um, was focused on Deleuze and Foucault and biopolitics and the body. And really, it was sort of much more interested in looking at the different kinds of apparatuses that uh, technology writ large was kind of developing in relation to how humans interacted with each other. And, you know, the the kind of very now well-trodden area of the Deleuzean approach to subjectivity, which basically explodes any idea of kind of desire in the in the Lacanian sense. And I'm sure lots of people listening to this will be aware of the kind of conflict between the Deleuzean and the Lacanian approaches to to the subject. And I think there was too much co- people quick off the trigger to to kind of appropriate the Deleuzean approaches to, to subjectivity, which kind of forgot a lot of the important questions around language and speech and the body and um, enjoyment that were so central um, initially to the whole kind of Lacanian project and, of course, what Deleuze tried to extract from from Lacan. So uh, it was really a question of kind of trying to maintain some idea of what the question of the body really means when we're talking about artificial intelligence and and how not to to lose the sort of psychoanalytic insights that may have been forgotten with a lot of the post-human literature. Uh, Isabel, I'm wondering if we can sort of the entanglement of Lacan with technology, with the post-human, with AI, these are uh, interesting questions to kind of force together to think through what uh, the Lacanian questions might be and and wondering what your approach was in carrying out your dissertation and your in your book well first of all I kind of well my approach was actually very unsystematic actually because the way that I went about it was was really to to look at film first and foremost um, and it was through the analysis of film that I started to kind of develop a way of thinking with Lacan that I think sort of opened up new ways of, of trying to, to use psycho, psychoanalysis to think about technology that I, I don't think has necessarily been, been done before because most of the time with Lacan, it's uh, the sort of standard way that people think of Lacan in relation to, for example, cybernetics is very much the sort of early Lacan thinking about, you know, the combinatorial unconscious and the sort of algorithm and all of the sort of much more hard structuralist side of, of Lacan. And what, of course, for people who read Lacan will, will know is that towards the, the later part of his teaching, he, he very much changes his approach to, to thinking about to thinking about the concept of, of Dreisand, for example, to thinking about language and to thinking about the unconscious as uh, not just an, a, a system of combinatorial um, structures, but actually as the question of the body and very much the sort of affective, um, bodily, nonsensical side of, of the question. So, so this transition between the 
the unconscious is structured like a language to the unconscious as a speaking body and the unconscious as different forms or structures of enjoyment, which is in line with you know his famous phrase that he uses the 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 non rapport the, the the non-existent sexual relationship and this kind of idea of a kind of structural um, disjunction really becomes very important when we start to think about the application of the concept of AI in relation to to human intelligence. So the first part of the book is actually trying to work up towards this question via the sort of traditional route of sort of philosophy or critical theory approaches to AI, um, which would probably take a, a more, a different approach to AI in the sense of thinking about it as this kind of different, just a sort of a ghostly imitation of human intelligence, a sort of uh, an imaginary sort of gestalt of, of the idea of a thinking thing. And of course, for Lacan, you know, this thinking thing is, is not a thing. There isn't such a thing as the thinking subject. It's, it's this punctual, evanescent moment that only happens in, the, in the, the moment of speech. So the first part of the book is really sort of trying to articulate what a psychoanalysis of AI would be, as opposed to a philosophy of AI, um, and, and sort of breaking down the steps to, to, to get towards that. So first of all, I, I would approach the question of intelligence as um, a kind of concept which has been sort of a sleight of hand that has happened with the way that we think of AI because we think we know what intelligence is. But of course, if you look at the history of intelligence, uh, that, that concept has morphed and changed according to different scientific paradigms, different um, political interests, and the different sort of historical junctures that, that changed the way that we conceptualize it. So Catherine Malibu wrote, wrote this very good book called <laughs> called Morphing Intelligence, uh, where she sort of thinks about that, that very question and, and gives a very uh, interesting genealogy of the concept. And she finishes the book by saying, well, you know, we're now at this fourth blow to human narcissism, of course, following Freud's third blow to human narcissism, where we have to take AI as a, into account as a serious question for humans. And, and she says, you know, AI is a, is a philosophical problem that we need to think about seriously. And, and there's lots of positive as well as negative questions surrounding that. So I sort of, my, my starting point is to say, I agree, but I think it's not just philosophy that we, you know, needs to take AI seriously. It's philosophy that needs to take um, psychoanalysis seriously in thinking about this question, because I think you can't do a philosophy of AI without a psychoanalysis of AI because of this kind of problem of the question of intelligence as sort of already incorporating a certain question of stupidity, a certain question of an absence of knowledge, a, a lack, a, a structural um dark spot and so and from from there you know i sort of start building out the other kinds of component questions that we would have to start thinking about in order to come to this psychoanalysis of ai in, uh, in your work as well you you do some very interesting in referring back to jacqueline miller's interview with lacan where he poses the the kantian questions what can i know what i what ought i to do what may mm -hmm. i hope for and and course the the additional question of what is man and I'm wondering if you can um talk through this part of your work in the in yeah the so that's right in 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 television the interview um Millet asks Lacan the, the, the Kantian questions the three sort of famous enlightenment questions and Lacan says well I'm a psychoanalyst and it's not my job to answer those questions it's my job to position the subject so as so as that they can answer those questions, um, and I, and I thought thought this was quite a nice way of 
starting off the book as a gesture towards how psychoanalysis operates in relation to some of the big philosophical questions that are always, you know, we are always trying to answer. And and psychoanalysis, you know, doesn't try and answer these questions in the in the way that philosophy tries to answer them. But nevertheless, they are central questions to the psychoanalytic project. And so I, I sort of use those models of questions as a way of trying to think about our relationship to AI from a slightly sort of subvertive point of view, so that each question would be taken up uh, via sort of fictional text, i.e. in a film, and, and to, to try and answer them as if it were a psychoanalytic question. So the, the first question, what, what can I know, is, is one which for me is a question of the, the position of sexuality and uh, the way in which we can know whether we're a man or a woman is, of course, for psychoanalysis, a, you know, the central subjective question for all of us, am I a man or a woman? And very much this is what conditions how we become subjects. So the, the first film that I talk about is Ex Machina, in which the, um, the famous Turing test is enacted between a man, a human man, and an artificially intelligent woman or sex bot, where she has to convince the, the, the man that, that she's human. But really what she's doing is convincing him that she's female, because by the end of it, he's in love with her and he wants to run off of her and have sex with her and whatever. So it's really a sort of dramatization of the enactment of sexuality or sexual positioning, because of course she's not human. <laughs> but trying to convince him of her humanity, she has to convince him of her femininity, which become one in the same thing in, in this interaction. And I thought it was a very sort of quite elegant way of, of demonstrating that the the kind of very much um, intertwinement of how artificial intelligence is already parasitic upon certain questions that we have about subjectivity that we don't necessarily already think about just on our day-to-day -day basis, but psychoanalysis thinks about it, of course. So the, the, the second question is, of course, what, what should I do? And um, which is the ethical question of psychoanalysis and the question of, how one should act with respect to one's uh, desire. And, and for psychoanalysis, the question of, of desire and ethics are absolutely intertwined. And for Lacan, the, the, the ethical act is one which takes into account the, the sort of diabolical and, and sort of all-consuming desire of, of the subject, which is why he engages with, with um, the Marquis de Sade in, uh, in thinking about Kantian ethics so that for Lacan, the, the question of you know, Kantian ethics becomes a question of, of Sardian enjoyment. And he inverts these, these two thinkers uh, to try and show how each one is implicated in, in the other's thought in some way. And the third question is the question, what can I hope for? Which essentially for, for, for AI is the question of, I mean, fictionally speaking, the question of what, what could the idea of a replicable subjectivity mean as opposed to a reproductive subjectivity. So the difference between a human that is born and a, and a human that is made, which of course we see dramatized in um, Blade Runner 2049 and famous plight that everybody uh, knows from the original Blade Runner as well, which is the, the question of, you know, am I a human? Um, and, and, and that, that question becomes not am I human anymore, but am I, was I born? Do I have a history? Do I have a mother? Uh, which is a, obviously a deeply psychoanalytic question. So I was sort of interested in thinking about what kind of questions we're asking when we're asking 
about whether you can replicate the human consciousness and, and those questions of history and um, motherhood and, and all of these other psychoanalytic things. I'm wondering if the, the problem of technological mediation as it relates to desire, uh, what are the implications from a critical theory perspective in both uh, philosophy and, and psychoanalysis? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's such a huge, huge question. And the sort of the question of mediation in terms of, you know, human desire or human subjectivity is one that I think is kind of, it's actually been not very exhaustively thought about from a psychoanalytic point of view. And um, that's why I was kind of interested in bringing in when we're starting to talk about the question of desire and technology, which is a sort of quite well-known theme in psychoanalytic literature. What often I think is talked about is, is questions of, you know, capitalism and the sort of extinguishing of desire because you're constantly just being fed the, the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and, and how this has a sort of very deadening effect on subjectivity. And I think we can all sort of agree that, yes, that is definitely the case and that is um, kind of indisputable now and you don't even need to sort of have psychoanalysis to see that that's happening most people can can see that themselves just by every time they turn on their phone and they want to smash it against the wall you know they, we know that technology is, is is bad for us but at the same time we also know it's not as simple as that you know it's a very complicated relationship and it's a biopolitical relationship and it's a it's a it's a question that in, involves our very uh the very um construction of our sense of self so what then I, I kind of was interested in is to trying to think about different concepts from psychoanalysis that could help us think a little bit more about the much more sort of material question of, of how the body is changing and how the question of memory, the question of intelligence and all of these these concepts that we think that we, we understand are mediated by this relationship between the technological object and our bodies. So, you know, for, for example, the Bernard Stiegler, the late Bernard Stiegler, he, he wrote very much on this question of um, how the, the sort of the harmonization process and how technology was this sort of pharmacon, but it was uh, it wasn't as simple as saying, oh, no, now we're cyborgs and, and we've, got, we've reached this kind of um, threshold where we are no longer human because now we're technological, which would be the sort of Haraway approach. And I think that someone like Stigler had a much more nuanced way of, of sort of looking at the history of technology in uh, relation to the, the, the actual evolution of the human body and the human brain, and trying to understand the very intricate um, process that, that this has undergone. And, you know, when, of course, we get to the question of AI, it explodes, and it becomes even more technically challenging question to think about what's happening to the brain and what's happening to the body when, for example, we would have things like neuronal implants or artificially intelligent um, short circuits between human cognitive processes and artificially intelligent ones. So, I mean, for, for, for such a huge project, and um, I can only sort of scratch the surface, but I sort of tentatively touch on it and, and use, for example, Lacan's concept of the Lathus, which is this strange object that he talks about in seminar 17 a sort of an object that is a product of science and technology in the sense that it's a it's a invention of a a new form of um extracting the the enjoyment from the body to create 
new forms of objects. And this is a very different type of object from just the object A in the sense of a structural impulse of desire, because the lathus is something which actually operates on the, well, in my, in my sort of understanding or development of the term, it's an it's a object that operates on the drives. Uh, so it has an actual effect on the way that we develop our partial drives, um, the voice, the gaze, and how this is a way that can be interfered with by science and technology in a much more originary way than we've ever experienced before. Uh, so I have a, a couple of questions, one of which is, um, you know, how you're thinking through of this project of how it relates um, to the body and what implications can maybe be drawn from it. And secondly, uh, Jean-Luc Nancy just passed away a, a few days ago, but, you know, his investigations into friendship and community, um, you know, in discussion with uh, Derrida, Gump and many others, uh, are there implications of AI related to the formation and dissolution of community? Are there implications that can maybe be drawn from thinking through these things philosophically and, and, and um, psychoanalytically? Um, for the question of community, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that, you know, what one of the kind of original kind of impulses as well for, for the book was the sort of very um, worrying, I suppose, fact that the people who are most powerful and and influential in uh, the development of AI are, of course, entrepreneurs and, of course, scientists and and lots of very clever people who are developing AI. But there are not many people from, say, the humanities or from um, philosophy, from psychoanalysis, from disciplines which traditionally think about humans, you know, think about what are humans and what and what are the important questions that we need to ask when we're thinking about the future of humans and it was this kind of starkness of the fact that you know we've got sort of um Elon Musk and 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 Ray Kurzweil and Jeff Bezos and and they they're the people who are really out there defining what's ha- coming up in the, in the coming decades yet you know, forgive me for saying, they don't seem to me to be the, the best qualified people to think about what's good for humans. And I don't think anyone could dispute that, but yet they have such enormous power. And for example, somebody like Ray Kurzweil, who writes about the singularity, who writes about the future of human consciousness, and I think is believe I believe is taken very seriously. Yet if you if you look at his books, I mean there's very little knowledge of, of sort of the actual history or critical history of human thought um, in there. And there's certainly no mention of sexuality or, or any of those extremely important questions. So it was this kind of like massive lacuna that I thought, well, why is nobody talking about this? Why is nobody addressing them? And and I, and I think that there is this huge sort of gap between discourses of, on the one hand, very kind of politically engaged and subtle and, and nuanced approaches to the question of AI. And on the other hand, these bombastic, phallic, scientific ideas about the future of humanity. And it's all very sort of hubristic, but they don't really talk to each other. So I suppose that was also one of the ideas that I wanted to, to bring this to, into a conversation that would open up new conversations. Now, in terms of the uh, reception of the book, it's certainly been circulating widely amongst a number of people that I know, um, professors, psychoanalysts, colleagues of mine from European Graduate School and, and others, but wondering uh, from your perspective, uh, what have you heard back about the book, both strange, sublime and interesting, because you know it's being read in 
philosophy, psychoanalytic, and, and other uh, circles, probably within the AI community as well. And just wondering, uh, you know, what you hear back as, you know, you, you write a book, you put it out into the world, you work for a number yeah. of years on a dissertation, edit into a book, and then, you know, it, it becomes something else once it's out of your hands. Yeah. And, and what your feeling of the reception part of? Yeah, well, I mean, it's been really lovely, actually, because as you say, you know, you don't know when you write a book and certainly not when you're writing your PhD thesis, you don't know what's going to happen. You barely, you, all you can think about is, will I actually get my PhD? So that was my main concern. <laughs> so the fact that people wanted to, you know, that anyone wanted to publish it or let alone read it was very encouraging and heartening. And then, you know, I, I got lots of really wonderful positive responses and just people engaging with it from very different backgrounds and you know obviously academically different disciplinary backgrounds from philosophy and theory and psychoanalysis but also from outside of academia from people who were just interested and just thought oh this is something interesting I want to know about and and you know people obviously get sort of put off by the daunting thing of, oh, it's Lacan and, and we can't read Lacan because Lacan's hard and all that. And I think, I hope that what the case is that that shouldn't put you off because, yes, it's, you know, we're all academic, but there's sort of specialist knowledge required. But at the same time, the whole idea is that, you know, we're bringing new ideas together and it, sh it should be for everyone. Everyone should be able to, to engage with it. So I've been really like amazed actually by the feedback of, of people going, wow, I I didn't think that this is what I didn't know what this book would be about, but I'm really amazed by what the kind of questions that you're asking. I thought, well, actually, I'm really amazed because I didn't know what questions I was going to ask. And I suppose just going in without having the preconceived idea of what I had to do as a PhD thesis, which I think sometimes a lot of people suffer from if they have too heavy handed kind of suffocating supervision. And, and luckily, you know, I had a really great supervision that allowed me to explore and, and not feel that I was restricted by any disciplinary boundaries. I could just do basically do whatever I wanted. And and I suppose surprising yourself is really the best thing. And and yeah, and I suppose it's just kind of opening up new new conversations really. So I'm hoping that more people will engage with it and and want to take other questions further. In terms of your own relationship to psychoanalysis, have you been either as a clinician or um, engaged in psychoanalysis yourself? And, and how has that sort of shaped your relationship to working with psychoanalytic theory? Well, I, I haven't been in analysis. I mean, I, I did do my due diligence of saying, okay, I have to to go through the motions of going into psychoanalysis because if I'm doing so much Lacan and, you know, I, I didn't continue with it because to be honest being so immersed in Lacanian theory and so surrounded by it and thinking about it all the time is a lot to have to cope with and doing a PhD and all that but it's also I think a sort of something that I'm sure lots of other people will relate to who are involved in psychoanalysis and theory is that sometimes I think you have to make a decision with something like Lacan which is that, you know, if I want to be able to be critical, if I want to be a, you know, philosopher, in inverted commas, I have to not have a master in a way. I have to be able to not be kind of constrained by what may be the kind of necessities of being in analysis myself or wanting to be a clinician. You know, some people, I think, can do that. And I think that is also a, a very big skill to be able to hold those two things separately and, and and by that is by no means a sort of denigration of doing those both things because I think it's also really important that there are clinicians who also do theoretical work it's essential but I think for me I just 
at this stage of my life anyway, didn't feel that I wanted to have to, to deal with all of the other institutional questions of being a psychoanalyst, as well as trying to use psychoanalysis for theory and, and sort of conceptual thought. Um, I, I know that you're uh, working on some uh, new projects in some areas around uh, pedopolitics. I'm wondering if you can speak about some of your new work and, and some of these concepts that you're thinking through now. Parapolitics was a concept that I sort of um, coined, I suppose, psychoanalysis of AI. And, and it kind of came about because, you know, obviously the central conceptual tool that I use is this idea of the sex bot, who is this, the figure who has to undergo the Kantian questions. And in the, the chapter on ethics and sort of Saad and Kant, the question of patai politics came up because I was thinking about, um, I was thinking about necropolitics and I was thinking about how um, this sort of figure of the sort of eternally abusable or fuckable sex bot that we have in fiction and we have in film. Obviously, we don't really have it in real life. We have the kind of basic um, perfunctory rubber dolls that, people might call sex books, but that's not really what I'm talking about. I mean, I'm talking about the conceptual idea of, you know, this Westworldian um, creature that can be used and abused. And and eventually we have to start asking the question about the ethics of this. If we, we seriously did have, you know, creatures who we'd create for our own amusement. So this question of, of suffering, I thought was really interesting in relation to, to governance, because, you know, necropolitics being Akil Membe's uh, concept that he develops from Foucauldian questions of the biopolitical in which he sort of looks at not just the question of the government of life, but the government of the sort of of death in a sense of the governance of how you create whole populations that live in a state of walking death uh, who don't have the sort of um, normal uh, ideas of what a, a human should have in, in terms of freedom and, and basic comforts. So the idea of the politics of suffering from the Latin patio to suffer, I started to think about in relation to sex, in relation to how we have sort of started already with this little seed of the idea of sex robots, you know, that is everywhere in, in film and literature, that we're already trying to think about what humans do when they're able to make other people suffer for their own enjoyment, which Humans already do anyway, because humans are horrible, sadistic creatures who do that all the time. But we still have an, have some sort of general idea of, oh, that's bad. You know, humans shouldn't do that because we shouldn't be sex trafficking and stuff like that. But, but when it comes to the question of, oh, well, yeah, but you can create these things for the sake of allowing humans to get out their nasty or... Um, indulgent sides and all and there's no repercussions because it's something that can just be reprogrammed the next day so the kind of this idea of the question of the ethics of enjoyment and how um what would happen when the kinds of infrastructures that are out there that allow us to enjoy or make others suffer are kind of changed or exponentially augmented how how would that affect us so it's more of a at the moment, it's a kind of question of a sort of fictive future, but actually we already see the seeds of this, the question of patai politics everywhere. It's everywhere you look, you can find instances where um, the politics of suffering are going on. And, and, and the reason why it's a sort of psychoanalytic concept is, of course, because for psychoanalysis, uh, jouissance or enjoyment is this paradoxical concept on the sort of threshold of pleasure and pain. And it's very much a enjoyment that 
is a suffering and a suffering that is an enjoyment. So it's really a, a sort of apartheid politics is a, is a project which tries to look at the question of the sort of ambivalent question of sexual suffering that we find everywhere and that is only becoming more apparent. Uh, how has the sort of um, disorienting pandemic period shaped or changed your thinking? Or you've been in a room, philosophers and psychoanalysts are oftentimes in a room by themselves anyway. <laughs> so so maybe it was a source of comfort. I don't know. But I'm wondering if the, the period we've been through over the past year and a half or so, how that's uh, affected yeah, you. Yeah, I mean, I think for most people who write or think for a living or academics, you know, are used to having to sit on their own for a, in in rooms um writing or whatever. So in a in a sense I didn't I didn't even when the pandemic actually hit, because I was in I was actually in the midst of writing up my thesis. I wasn't really leaving the house anyway. So it kind of didn't make much difference to me. But yeah, I mean it is very sort of um mind altering that you kind of get so used to the idea that we don't see each other anymore and everything is done via a screen. And, you know, what's happened to academia, really? I, I, it's scary because I, you know, luckily during my PhD, I did get a lot of opportunity to to go out to, to conferences and to talk at events and do all that fun stuff that is associated with what it is to, to be a sort of intellectual academic person who writes and thinks about stuff. And, and that was, you know, really amazing that that was still a thing. And now it's sort of like... Will that ever happen? Because now universities have got the idea that we don't need to do that anymore because everyone just goes on Zoom. So why would we have events? And I, that really worries me, actually, because I think the sort of culture of, of having events with other humans where we talk ideas together may be lost even more. And, that, and that's really quite a sad thing. And I really hope that that's not the case, but um, it, it's not looking good. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Isabel, is there anything you'd like oh, to add? Oh, well, I'd just like to say I hope we get to have an in-person event one day where we can have an actual conversation. <laughs> well, you have a lot of uh, fans here in Vancouver. Um, we have a very robust and active Le Consolon, and people are very familiar with oh, your work. You. So I'm sure we will figure out a way to uh, get you to Vancouver. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us on Below Thank the Radar. Thank you so much. It was lovely to talk to you. Below the Radar is a Knowledge Democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Thanks for listening to this episode with Dr. Isabel Millar. To learn more about Isabel's work, take a look at the show notes below. If you enjoyed the episode, we'd really appreciate it if you drop us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps us to reach more listeners and bring more people into these conversations. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time on Below the Radar. <laughs>